Welcome, everyone. My name is Devan Mangamurthy, and I'm a student fellow at South Asian Studies Council at Yale Macmillan Center. Welcome back to South Asian Studies Council's occasional podcasts with South Asia's most significant intellectual voices. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Srinath Raghavan, Professor of International Relations and History at Ashoka University in Delhi. Srinath is the author of four books, Fierce Enigmas, A History of the United States in South Asia, India's War, The Making of Modern South Asia, 1939 to 1945, 1971, A Global History of the Creation of Bangladesh, and War and Peace in Modern India, A Strategic History of the Nehru Years. He is currently working on and nearing completion of A Global History of India in the 1970s. And Srinath has been praised as one of India's foremost historians and fated, including with the Infosys Prize for Social Science in 2015 for his work. This semester, Yale has been lucky to have him as a visiting professor at the newly inaugurated Jackson School of Global Affairs. Professor Sunil Amrit, Chair of South Asian Studies Council, noted earlier this semester that not only is Srinath one of the most talented historians anywhere in the world today, he is also an exceptionally generous colleague and mentor to students, as many at Yale have already found in the months he's been here. It's been a true pleasure to have him with us for the whole semester. And a phenomenon that is not always true for professors, every student I've spoken to has agreed with those sentiments. And so I want to jump into things with a question about the book you're working on about India in the 1970s. The 1970s have it all. Nuclear tests, secession, democratic backsliding, popular mobilization, annexation, and shole. What drew you into writing about the period? Devan, thanks first of all for uh, having me on this podcast. It's really nice to be able to uh, talk to you about the work that I've been doing while uh, here at Yale during the semester. Uh, as you mentioned, this is uh, really a book about what I call the long 1970s in the context of India. And the chronological span of the book really starts from about 1967 uh, and runs through to the mid-1980s with perhaps an epilogue which will take us all the way to 1991. Uh, and the broad aim of the book really is to chart and explain the transformation of India during the long 1970s. This is a period when India goes from being a single-party dominated political system uh, to one which leads to a much more fragmented kind of uh, period of coalition politics from the end of the 1980s. This is a period when India goes from being a planned uh, model of economic development to the sort of period of economic liberalization, reforms and opening up again from the early 1990s. And this is a period when India's position in the international system goes from being a so-called non-aligned power in the context of a superpower competition to a world in which India has to deal with uh, a unipolar kind of international order. And the book really is an attempt to explain how these transformations happen and to relate them to one another. And uh, the idea is to tell a big picture story, but with a lot of new archival and other primary materials that I've been sort of uh, researching on for the past decade. So this is really an attempt to treat this period historically. We have some very fine works by economists, political scientists, sociologists, uh, which I have read and benefited immensely from. But I think as a historian, my questions are more about change over time and how do we explain and capture that kind of a change and to recreate some of the texture and temper of the times, which is what I try to do as a historian. And can you tell me a little bit about sort of the enduring relevance of this period for contemporary India? Because many of the conversations I've had in the past year cite 1992 as sort of the epochal moment in modern Indian history, or at least the Indian history of the past 50 or so years. What is the case for the 70s as enduring and relevant to contemporary India? 
So one of the ways in which the 1970s routinely come up in discussions of contemporary India are kind of the parallels that are evoked between uh, what happened then and what is happening today uh, in a sense that today I think it's safe to say that we are in another period where, uh, you know, we have one political party which is very dominant in the political system. We have a prime minister who's a very charismatic and a popular personality. Uh, there is a sense in which the existing restraints and checks of the Indian democratic system are being sort of eroded and washed away in the facing in the face of this tide of kind of political change that we are witnessing. Uh, and so naturally, there is, a, you know, a tendency to go back to earlier periods when we have seen this and say, hey, how does this compare with, say, the emergency that Mrs. Indira Gandhi imposed on India between 1975 to 77, right? I mean, that's the kind of contrast which is routinely drawn up. Now, to be honest, I do not find those conversations very illuminating for the simple reason that I think, you know, history very seldom teaches by these kinds of analogies. Uh, as I have worked on this project, the way that I have come to understand the significance of the 1970s is along two lines. The first is to say that in some ways, many of the changes and transformations that took place, including the weakening of Indian democratic institutions, the role of the Supreme Court, and various other kinds of independent agencies, and the way that a powerful executive was able to grind down opposition uh, in so many different domains. I think in some ways that earlier sort of blows which were struck on the institutional sort of uh, model of Indian democracy are in some ways the background against which the current exercise has to be understood. So in a sense, it's it's an earlier period of weakening, not to say hollowing out of many Indian institutions. There is a period of rebuilding which happens. So I don't want to make it seem as if it is going from gloom to doom. But nevertheless, uh, that earlier period has left an imprint and has left weaknesses which are now coming to the fore. So I see that as, uh, in some ways, very vital historical sort of background for us to understand why is it that, you know, things seem to be going down south so quickly and uh, with so little resistance in some ways. The other way in which I think, uh, you know, the study of the 1970s is useful is because in a real sense, the 1970s also set the context for a lot of the politics that we have seen of this period. I mean, just to give you one example, right? I mean, if you look at the who's who of Indian politics today, um, leaders not just from the Prime Minister down, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, practically the leadership of all the regional parties. You know, I, I'm from the state of Tamil Nadu, so if you look at the Chief Minister of Tamil Nadu, Mr. Stalin, uh, you look at the leaders, uh, Chief Minister of Bihar, Mr. Nitish Kumar, you know, a range of leaders in the Congress party. I'm not talking about Mr. Rahul Gandhi, but others. Um, all of them were product of the 1970s. They entered Indian politics in that moment of churn and ferment. And in a very real sense, you know, across the political spectrum, today you have political actors for whom the 1970s were very formative. So I think in that sense, again, going back uh, to that period really allows us to get a deeper historical purchase on what is happening uh, to Indian politics now. What is the kind of background assumptions that these actors bring together? Uh, many of the challenges that, you know, we face in Indian politics today are superficially similar to what were in the 1970s, which is to say, how do opposition parties come together and coalesce against an electoral juggernaut uh, like the BJP? It, back in the day, it was the Indira Congress, right? Uh, and instead of saying that the 1970s have any straightforward answer, I think it's more useful to understand that period as really the foundational period for contemporary Indian politics. 
and I'm curious because I hadn't thought about this until you brought it up now. Many of the leaders of regional parties, uh, whether Nitish Kumar, whether M.K. Stalin, are somewhat gerontocratic. And many of the opposition regional parties that exist in India are led by people who, like you said, were formed in the 1970s and are very old compared to the people they govern. What do you think, too, is the significance of the fact that so many of India's leaders may have been formed in the 70s and may be living in some respects in the past um, and challenging to and, and struggling to challenge the ruling party? Well, I mean, I don't think it's so much a question that they are living in the past, but that they came into politics at a similar moment of both crisis and change. And at that point of time, they were all very young leaders. You know, the, you know, Indira Gandhi's attempts to reform the Congress party kind of ran aground very soon after her early victories in 1971 and 72. But the Youth Congress still remained an important vehicle through which many people who are very prominent in Indian politics today in the Congress party, if you look at the, say, the list of people who were in the cabinets of the previous UPA 1 and 2 governments. A lot of them came to the Congress party in the 1970s. Uh, you know, often through Sanjay Gandhi, who was not a very sort of, you know, particularly liked figure either then or later. Um, and as I said, much of the opposition, both in terms of the BJP's leadership, but also a range of the socialist parties, uh, you know, which kind of play an important role in the politics of North India, all of them were formed in the anti sort of Indira Gandhi and then subsequently the period of the emergency when many of them spent spells in jail. Uh, so in a very real sense, I think that period is the one which has inaugurated the politics of, uh, you know, the period that we are living through today. So I wouldn't say that they are necessarily living in the past, but I think that moment of their entry into Indian politics is a very significant one. Uh, and I think it still leaves a very uh, dark shadow on the way that politics operates today. And I'm going to have to apologize in advance for asking you to engage in a little bit of prediction. But do you think a similar class of young politicians is emerging at the regional level or even for the national parties that has the potential to be transformative in the same way that many of these leaders have been for their states? And what does it say about Indian regional politics that so many of these leaders have been in power, in and out of power for so long? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the key difference between... Um, the political opposition in the 1970s, which was faced up against Mrs. Gandhi's Congress, and the political opposition today, is that it's precisely this kind of the pattern of regionalization of politics that we see. Uh, there are hardly any you know, parties other than the Congress, uh, you know, which can claim to be, quote unquote, some kind of a national presence and an opposition to the BJP, right? Much of the resistance electorally that the BJP has faced and all the defeats that they've faced have been against very strong regional leaders, right? I mean, for, so for instance, uh, you know, when in Bihar, if you had uh, Nitish Kumar and Alalu Yadav, both of whom are products of the, you know, uh, sort of anti-Indira Gandhi kind of movement led by Jai Prakash Narayan in the 1970s, uh, then, you know, they can stop the BJP's juggernaut in its tracks. Uh, you have a leader like Mamta Banerjee, you know, who, who can kind of, you know, stand up to them. Uh, or you have leaders like, uh, you know, M.K. Stalin, who has kind of in at least two both the general elections of 2019 and the state elections subsequently, has managed to hold his own. So I think, but the problem today is that most of these are very much regional forces with regional bases of interests and power to protect in a way that was not true of the opposition back then. In fact, you know, a lot of the discussion in the period between 1972 and 1975, when the emergency is imposed, is how do we get together effectively as an opposition? And you'd be surprised at the number of ideas that people had that all of these parties should be merged together. 
which exactly is what happens after the emergency when they come together under this new Janata Party, right? So there was a very different way of thinking about opposition unity and so on. In today's kind of regionalized framework, I don't think that is at all the case. In fact, many of these parties find it very difficult to sort of cooperate uh, against the BJP in a consistent way with each other, right? Because they have other kind of interests to guard against, to protect. Um, the central government still has a lot many resources and powers that it wields over the states. I mean, that's the nature of Indian federalism. Uh, so it, it is very difficult for parties which are entirely based on states to be able to kind of do that, right? The second thing is that many of these parties have also become, and here I think the BJP's kind of criticism is kind of picking up on something, which is that many of these have become sort of family uh, firms in their own way. So, and I think that also makes it much more important for them to survive for the sake of survival rather than to think about transformative politics uh, in the way that. And the third thing I'd say is that, you know, in the 1970s, there was a popular sort of movement against the government, particularly from 1974 uh, in the period up to the emergency. And in some ways, it was that popular movement which galvanized the opposition into this, right? So if you're thinking about purely opposition unity in electoral terms, the simple fact is that apart from the 1977 election, when there was a huge kind of uh, repudiation of Mrs. Indira Gandhi's emergency and the sort of autocratic tendencies that she demonstrated in that period, especially in North India, Barring the 1977 election, it's actually very difficult to think of other elections in this period when the opposition came together effectively. I mean, you think of the 1971-72 elections, there was this kind of grand alliance uh, against Indira and so on. Didn't work out. 1980, Mrs. Gandhi, in fact, comes back with a even significantly larger majority. So I think electoral politics on its own terms has always had its limitations. What worked for these opposition groups, but which also kind of led to the imposition of the emergency, was actually popular upsurge, which they were then able to, you know, they were basically surfing that wave very effectively. And that was a role that Jayaprakash Narayan was able to play in that period. And the continuing atomization of Indian politics, regional politics, is something we've seen with the creation of new states, with the creation of increasingly ethnic and linguistically based governmental structures. Is this dangerous to the integrity of the Indian Union? Or is it something actually holding it together? I think it's a latter because I think at least in the Indian case, the ability to sort of creatively manage these kinds of differences and tensions is a very important aspect of it, right? And I think the history of the linguistic transformation of India's internal map is testimony to this point. I mean, see, the Congress under Mohandas Gandhi uh, had already reorganized itself into more linguistically oriented units of the Congress party, even though the British Raj had its own administrative units, right? And the Congress was committed to this kind of thing. But when, given the context in which independence came, which was against the backdrop of partition and various kinds of challenges around the integration of the princely states, both Jawaharlal Nehru and Sardar Patel and much of the Congress leadership actually did not want to go through with the promise of linguistic reorganization. But if you look at the 1950s and the 60s, a lot of what you would think of as popular democratic politics and energies are primarily coalescing around various kinds of demands for regional, you know, administrative and political structures which reflect certain kinds of regional identities. Now, now it's important for us to remember that these regional identities are co-evil with 
the national identity that the Congress party manages to sort of do it, right? So it's not as if the regional identities are somehow subordinated to it. No, most people saw the Indian nation through the prism of a certain regional identity. And we have fantastic historical work documenting this for practically every region of India now. So I think the relationship between the region and the nation was such that, uh, you know, the push for greater democratization of the structures of the Indian state through linguistic reorganization of sort of the administrative boundaries of India became one major vehicle through which democratic politics actually operated. And I think it is to the credit of the Congress party uh, and its leadership at that point of time that they somewhat grudgingly, slowly, haltingly, but nevertheless finally did manage to concede these demands and thereby kind of, you know, taking uh, the more dangerous potentialities that you sort of referred to out of the equation. I mean, I, I, again, you know, uh, if you look at, say, the uh, history of Pakistan in the same period, and I've worked on the creation of Bangladesh, uh, it is a striking contrast, uh, precisely because the same challenges are operative in the context of Pakistan. But given Pakistan's own history and the particular conception that they had of their state, uh, where, you know, there'd be one language, which would be the renamed kind of language of the state, etc., meant that they could not manage those tensions, eventually leading to the creation of an independent Bangladesh. Uh, so I would say that in the Indian context, you know, these things have for the most part been for better and they've been a force for democratization within the Indian context. So now I want to turn to a different topic, which is coming back to your book and about two things that you sort of use when describing the book. One is the idea of this is a long history of the 1970s. Why that approach and why not just the 70s themselves? Yeah, I think, again, uh, part of that tendency is, uh, you know, is the way that I as a historian think about particular things. I think a lot of the work on the 1970s, which I alluded to earlier, which is fantastic work uh, by political scientists, there are some very interesting, uh, you know, accounts of the emergency, including by, you know, historians like Jan Prakash and others who have kind of, you know, there's a book by uh, Pratina Vanil and Christoph Jafrilo, uh, who have kind of written a new book about the emergency. I think all of these are very fascinating books in their own right. Uh, but I just feel that an excessive focus on the emergency itself in some ways can be distorting because it makes it feel as if everything that was developing in Indian politics up to that time was leading to this culmination point of the emergency, right? Uh, I do not want to take that kind of a teleology at its face value. Uh, I would like to imagine that the emergency is the product of various kinds of conjunctures and forces which come together. Now, again, this is not necessarily something that these authors that I refer to would disagree with. But I think the way you set up a particular question and the framework within which you approach it also makes a difference. So for me, uh, I want to situate emer the emergency and the mid-1970s really as one point in a longer arc of change. Uh, and it's that arc that I'm more interested, uh, which is why this book is not particularly about the emergency. Obviously, there'll be, a, you know, there, there is a central sort of section on the emergency in the book. But I'm as much interested in what came before and what came after. So the causes and the consequences of the emergency are, to my mind, uh, important. But at the same time, as I said, it's not just political changes uh, that I'm interested in tracking. I think there are very important economic changes which happen in this period, uh, which again are somewhat simplistically referred to as a greater kind of state control over the economy, which is true. But there were other consequences of those kinds of things like bank nationalization or the various kinds of welfare schemes that Mrs. Indira Gandhi sort of unrolls from the 1970s, all of which have led a very deep and lasting genetic imprint on the Indian state and the way that it deals with the economy. So I think uh, as much as we may have turned a new picture, uh, a new page with the reforms of 1991, 
I think many aspects of the way that the Indian state relates to the economy, broadly speaking, uh, are still rooted in structures that go back to the 1970s. So I think there is change as well as continuity. And those are the kinds of questions that I'm interested in tackling, rather than just focusing on the emergency as an exemplary moment of whatever, you know, authoritarianism or resistance or call it what you will in the context of India. And the other choice you make is thinking about this history as something of a global history. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that means and what it means to write a history that is global in one sense or the other. Yeah. So, you know, I have actually written a previous book, which you referred to uh, on the creation of Bangladesh, 1971, is subtitled uh, Global History. Um, and I must say that, you know, when I was working on that book, I did not set myself to write a global history in the way. In fact, the vocabulary of global histories was not quite as prevalent in the late 2000s as it has become now. Uh, and I must confess that at times my eyes just glaze over when I read these endless debates about what constitutes global history and whether this particular way of doing it is the, you know, is the right way of doing global history and so on. I mean, I'm not particularly interested in those kinds of more uh, abstract, uh, programmatic debates about what global history is or should be. Uh, to me, I think the global dimension matters for two reasons uh, in this book. The first is, uh, and this goes back to my work on the creation of Bangladesh as well, is that the 1970s, it is well acknowledged in a lot of wider, um, you know, historiographies, is a period where we see the beginning of the current wave of globalization. Yeah. So the globalization, which really gets going from the 1990s, has its origins in the 1970s. I think that is very well documented for many parts of the world, and there is a very good literature on that. So in a very real sense, this is a period when processes, events, ideas are coming together across the globe in ways that are influencing processes, events, and ideas in other parts of the world, right? I mean, so if you think of the example of the student revolts of the 1968, you know, they really inaugurate in some ways the long 1970s. And that is an interconnected set of revolts where people are reading about, learning, being influenced by this, right? So the global is not some kind of an abstract entity which is hovering over the national or the regional and so on. But it is basically these forms of interconnections that we refer to as the, uh, global. But it is a, so in a sense, it is a historical phenomenon in its own right, the beginning of the contemporary wave of globalization. But uh, the second way in which I think I invoke the global is as an explanatory kind of set of factors. For me, global factors uh, are important because they help us to think about particular developments in the Indian context in ways that we may not have been very attentive to. I mean, let me give you an example, right? I mean, uh, so it is kind of quite acknowledged, and we were just discussing it uh, a while ago, that the emergency is preceded by a period of significant Indian kind of popular unrest and mobilization against um, the government. Now, it is acknowledged that a lot of this unrest uh, and mobilization happened for a variety of things, you know, especially unhappiness over the state of the economy, because politically, Mrs. Indira Gandhi had just been sort of voted into power with very significant majorities recently, right? So, so what went adverse for her was the sharp deterioration in the state of the economy. And that sharp deterioration can be explained by her own sets of policies or the policies adopted by her government from the late 1960s of trying to impose more state controls. But there was what I would say a conjunctural element, which is where the global dimension comes in. 
because 1974 is uh, 1973-74 is a period of extraordinary volatility in the Indian economy because of the oil shocks which come out of the Arab-Israeli conflicts. Right now, those oil shocks had implications for economies across the world, as they did for India. A lot of the labor unrest for that period, for instance, is about things like how do you get inflation adjustment for your wages. A lot of it is what in the Indian context is called dearness allowance. Yeah, that's what a lot of the labor sort of agitation is about in that period. Uh, India is a historically a low inflation economy. I think in the 20th century, there have been only two other shocks which are comparable in magnitude, though even those are perhaps not comparable. One during the First World War and the other during the Second World War. Right. The Second World War, in fact, was a stronger inflationary sort of shock to the Indian system. Uh, but in 1974, it really hit them very hard. And, you know, that gal galvanized protest. Now, I don't want to make it seem as if it's an economically deterministic explanation. Obviously, it is not. Uh, the particular areas where those protests began, states like Gujarat or Bihar, had particular local factors. But those local factors cannot, if you leave the global picture out, provide a satisfactory explanation for what was happening and why it was happening the time that it was happening. So for me, as a historian, the global dimension, therefore, is a very important explanatory sort of part of the story of the various kinds of determination that explain how these changes happen, right? That's just to give you just one example. But again, there's a similar oil shock in 1979. You know, that actually brings down the Janata Party government in effectively because it makes the economy, again, totally unmanageable. In fact, 1979 is the year uh, when India witnesses negative 5% GDP growth. It is the sharpest contraction of the Indian economy throughout the 20th century, right? I mean, and why does it happen? That happens for factors which are not entirely under the control of the Janata government itself. So it is in those ways that I think it is important for us to be able to think about the global and how it helps us explain the history of one particular country, in this context, that of India, right? Again, the emergency, yes, it is a moment of authoritarian kind of turn in the Indian context. But let's not forget that precisely because of the global conjuncture of the 1970s, democratic governments everywhere were struggling to hold on to power. The whole question of how to maintain democratic legitimacy is something that is very prevalent in the political discourse of the time. Uh, very few democratically elected governments actually managed to get re-elected in the 1970s. Now, India is an exception in a sense that there was an explicit turn towards authoritarianism. But what you see in India is a problem that democracy faces in the face of such sort of, you know, significant economic churn. Uh, and in that sense, India is not sui generis. So my concern is that, you know, by writing histories of India, which are focused primarily on what Mrs. Indira Gandhi was doing or what Jayaprakash Narayan is doing or to reduce it to a set of entirely internal structures, processes and individuals, uh, we may be missing out very important aspects of the picture of what is happening. And that is what I intend to do by bringing the global into this question. So it's not, I'm not setting out to write a global history. It just seems to me that the global is a very important part of the story I want to tell. And I want to, want to ask about one aspect of the global that you maybe haven't touched on, which is the environment. And India in the 1970s experienced a number of profound environmental transformations, not just when it came to dam building and environmental protection, but also Indira gives a speech at the Stockholm conference that ushers in an age of maybe non-aligned environmental ethic. Um, there's a chipkondolan going on in Uttarakhand, or what would become Uttarakhand. And there are ideas moving back and forth between India and the rest of the world about what an environmental ethic might look like and what the role of an environment should be in a democracy and a developing country. And do you look at that at all and at the role of the environment in 
Indian discourse in the 1970s and how it's interacting with discourses happening elsewhere in the world. Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I do look at that. Uh, I mean, there is a section on the book on various kinds of social movements, uh, popular movements that come out uh, of this particular period in which environmentalism is obviously a very important one. Feminism in India, uh, contemporary sort of round of feminism, uh, is again a story of the 1970s, very closely linked to the global feminist kind of change of that period. Uh, and as with environmentalism, I think it's important to recognize that these are processes and ideas that are taking hold in different countries. But it is not a diffusion story of saying that, you know, there are these environmental groups in the West and they are teaching, you know, groups in India how to sort of go about doing this. Actually not. I mean, if you look at the work of Ramachandra Goha, whom you referred to as being on your podcast earlier, uh, his earlier work, uh, some of the work, including stuff that he did at Yale as a very young scholar, actually was about trying to say that there were, you know, internal sort of impulses within Indian communities about how they want to relate to the environment around them and relate to the various kinds of changes that were happening, right? So the Chipko movement, for instance. Again, there are antecedents that uh, Guha has traced in his earlier work. But the 1970s are a very important kind of period in which it goes. And, you know, we now have an excellent book by the environmental historian Shekhar Pathak, uh, you know, on the Chipko movement, which is a social history. So you see that there is a, uh, you know, a density to thinking about the environment in a particular locale and context. But at the same time, as with the discussion we were just having a minute ago, I think it's still important to frame it within the broader global context because the global is not something that is either simply an addition of national stories or something which is, you know, emanating from the West and then coming to the rest. I, I think both of those are reductionist ways of thinking about it. I think we need to tell histories of Indian environmentalism and the environmental consciousness that's developing from an Indian perspective, while keeping the broader kind of global context in mind, right? And even Mrs. Gandhi's speech in the Stockholm conference that you referred to is a very interesting one, right? Because she there tries to relate India's environmentalism to its concerns about its own development, right? And she says poverty is one of the greatest forms of pollution, right? Which is to say that the rich countries obviously are concerned about environmentalism, but perhaps their concerns are somewhat different. And we see those kinds of distinctions playing out, you know, through the, you know, global or international environmental discourse that comes up, right? I mean, uh, about who has a responsibility for various kinds of, you know, damages which are being done to the environment in the great acceleration. Uh, how do we think about common but differentiated responsibility? Now we have a very different way of framing those kinds of questions. But you're right. I mean, all of that does go back to that period. Uh, so things like environmentalism, the feminism, these are things that uh, I do sort of talk about in the book. Uh, I must confess that I can't kind of do justice to all of them within the span of a book which is kind of trying to cover so much terrain. But I think there is um, there is a huge range of new scholarship that I'm drawing on, uh, which is uh, very inspiring and, you know, which has really shaped my own thinking about these things. And just on the topic of history in India, in the past decade or so, India has perhaps become less friendly to the tradition of historiography that you practice, heavily researched, deeply detailed, and in favor of facts over polemic. And this has been most recently demonstrated by the National Council of Educational Research and Training's decision to remove the Mughal Empire, Gujarat riots, and era of one-party dominance chapter from its class 12 textbooks. What does it mean to be a historian in contemporary India in a country in which textbooks are being rewritten at the state's directives and where you can't be confident that the stories you're telling will actually reach the audience you're hoping they will? Sure. I mean... And maybe the best way to answer that question is to historicize that question itself, right? Because this is another uh, dimension of 
uh, Indian politics that I try and track in the book. Uh, because, you know, the whole question of what kinds of textbooks should be written is, is as you can imagine, a, a question which is not something which has come up only very recently, right? Um, you know, most post-colonial governments are very concerned about how, what kind of history is being taught in schools, because that's the primary way in which you try and create a certain kind of national identity and so on, right? And again, in the context of the late 1960s and 1970s, the Indian state created institutions like the Indian Council on Historical Research in order to be able to, uh, you know, create certain kinds of uh, research bases for more deeper engagement with the Indian past. Uh, but that's also the period when, you know, important Indian historians were invited to actually contribute to the writing of textbooks. Uh, you know, people like Romila Thapar uh, were kind of engaged in those exercises. And again, the first sets of controversies actually happen when Indira Gandhi's government is voted out in 1977. And the uh, Janata government actually, again, has some problems with the textbooks as they stand, particularly, and perhaps not surprisingly, over the question of whether, you know, the textbook should talk about the consumption of beef in ancient India or as liquor as part of, you know, various kinds of ritual practices and so on. And, you know, for about a couple of years, there were running battles between Indian intellectuals, uh, particularly on the sort of center-left, so to speak, uh, and the government of the day, and, you know, about these kinds of questions. And, and uh, you know, there was, it was felt that, you know, there is an attempt to, so to speak, quote-unquote, communalize uh, Indian history. I mean, that is the vocabulary of the time. Uh, and then, of course, you know, when we get to the late 1980s, as the movement against the Babri Masjid kind of starts taking uh, hold. Again, historians are very deeply engaged in that particular question. Um, and in some ways, you know, this has been a running sort of controversy. I mean, we again think of textbooks at the national level. Believe me, there are many more changes which happen to textbooks in particular states, right? I mean, states like Rajasthan have had a longer history of these kinds of things. Many of the uh, most vocal proponents of uh, changes to historical history curricula, etc., have actually been quite active at the level of states. It's just that now with the BJP government uh, in power for so long with this degree of strength, clearly, you know, uh, uh, you know, there is an attempt to rewrite various kinds of things. Uh, and, you know, the government itself makes no bones about it. I mean, you, you've had the you know senior figures like the Home Minister, Mr. Amit Shah, saying quite openly that we need to rewrite the Indian past, that that past was written from a very colonial perspective. Now we are finally breaking out of that mindset. Now, I think all of those are contestable propositions, but the impulse is very clear. I don't think it's a hidden impulse in any particular sense of the word. Now, that obviously makes it, uh, you know, raises important questions for what uh, we as historians uh, should do in this kind of a role. I mean, I, I think um, the first thing is to say that, you know, most historians tend to operate in a much more professionalized setting. Uh, we write in the first instance for an audience of other academics uh, in learned and professional journals through processes of academic peer review and publication. Uh, you know, some of my colleagues uh, have sort of, you know, tried to reach wider audiences but it is seldom the case that you will find that historians are, say, very actively engaged in trying to shape school curricula, for instance, right? I mean, because that is where a lot of the action is, or that is where a lot of changes are happening. And perhaps that is where a lot of impulse is there, right? But I say that 
in the Indian context, I would say that most professional historians, barring a few who have quite regularly kind of taken part in or contributed to these textbooks which are currently being changed, uh, there has not been that much of engagement with historians uh, simply because the levels at which and the circles in which we operate uh, as academics tend to be quite far removed from the domain where actually the teaching of history becomes a lot more contested. And when you think about the effect that your books might have on the audiences that are reading them, whether academic or popular, what do you hope for? And has that changed in the context of what's going on in India today or in the context of your own progression as an author and as a historian over the past decade or so? Well, I'd say the first thing and perhaps the most important thing that you'd hope for is that at least some people read it. Uh, but, you know, my own motivations as a historian uh, are, you know, as with everyone, some of this is purely autobiographical. Uh, see, my own interest in history came out of a desire to understand uh, India's role in the world uh, in a very current and contemporary moment. I came out of the Indian Army, went to graduate school from there. Uh, so my questions and interests were very much shaped by uh, what I had seen and what I thought I would want to understand better happening in the contemporary world around me. But I just realized that, you know, history was perhaps the best way to do it for me. So for me, the relationship between my historical work and what I see as, uh, you know, a desire to understand the present is very strong. Again, I concede that that may not necessarily be true of most colleagues. And perhaps, you know, that is a deformity in my own work, that there is an element of presentism that I do bring to those questions. But honestly, I wouldn't be interested in any of the projects that I took up if I had not been so motivated. Um, so my idea is very much, therefore, to bring to write histories that in some ways cast some light on the present. As I said, that light is not often direct. It may be only by way of contrast. I think um, history, because it focuses on change, actually tells us what is different about the present rather than simply harking back to parallels, similarities, analogies from the past. I think those are not that of that interest to me, even with the work on 70s. As I said, I mean, what is interesting to me is why this moment is different from the 70s. For that, we need to understand the 70s very clearly rather than uh, working with, you know, easy shorthands of various kinds. So that's the kind of, uh, you know, perspective that I uh, try to bring to bear. And, uh, you know, much of my work in the international history of uh, modern South Asia was driven primarily by a desire to understand the development of contemporary international politics in the region, uh, India's own role in the world, and so on. And similarly, with my current work on the 1970s, I think I'm very much interested to understand how do we get to the point uh, in which we are currently operating now. And uh, that to me is the most interesting and important fact of what I'm trying to do. And I hope my readers will be able to get a sense of that from the book. And I think that's a lovely note for us to come almost to a close on. I just have one last question because we've had the pleasure of walking through a very chilly New Haven April um, a couple of minutes ago. How's your time at Yale been? It's been uh, fantastic, really. I mean, this is the first time, uh, come to think of it, in my academic life that I've actually managed to take a full semester sabbatical. Uh, I couldn't have asked for a better place to be here. Uh, of course, I came to Yale because I already had colleagues, uh, you know, whose work uh, has inspired and helped me on, um, you know, again, I don't want to sort of be invidious, but, uh, uh, you know, Ani Westar is someone I know from the time that I was a graduate student. Uh, you know, colleagues like David Engerman, Sunil Lamrath, uh, I think long-standing engagement with their work has been formative for my own ideas and thinking. 
And I think one of the most delightful parts of being here at Yale is the opportunity not just to learn from other colleagues, but also from my students. You know, uh, again, you know, it's a cliche for professors usually to say, oh, I learned so much from my class. But, uh, you know, there have been at least a few students reading whose work uh, I have been struck by how many new ideas uh, and materials and information that they have. Uh, and I think it's uh, all in all been a fantastic time. I think I've had a nicer uh, opportunity to read, write and think than I've had in a few years for now. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Devan. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.